You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If we've not met, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, so it's great to have you uh, with us today on a holiday weekend. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming out and um, worshiping with us. We are in a series on a book of the Old Testament called Jonah, and we're calling the series Surprising Mercy, Discovering God's Compassion for Those Far From Him. That's what we've been talking about for the first two weeks, but we shift that today as we look at Jonah 2. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. You can grab it, turn to page 451. You'll be able to track along with us. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you as our gift. Well, here's what we've studied so far. Uh, In chapter 1, a lot happened. I'll I'll catch you up here real quick, kind of like at the beginning, you know, of a TV show that's a serial uh, previously on Jonah 1. Here we go. So previously, uh, this is what we talked about, that God calls a prophet named Jonah with a mission, and he calls him to go and announce uh, to the city of Nineveh, which is a foreign nation, to announce uh, to that city in Assyria that God is going to bring judgment upon them. And Jonah doesn't want to do it. He can't imagine doing it. And in fact, he refuses to do it because Nineveh is the capital uh, of Assyria, and Assyria is an enemy nation. Not only are they an enemy nation, but they are notoriously cruel, vile in the way they treat their enemies at war in particular. They've exacted tribute or payment from Israel, and so he views them as, um, you know, what they are, an abusive nation. Um, at least under abusive leadership. And so he knows if he goes and speaks to them and warns them of judgment that they may turn to God and God will show mercy on them. And he doesn't want his enemy to receive mercy. He doesn't want the enemies of God to receive mercy. So what he does is he runs the other direction and, um, and he says that the, the book says that he is trying to flee from the presence of of God. So the book describes him fleeing and it speaks of him kind of going down. It uses this language of he's going down, down, down. He goes down to the city of Joppa. He goes down on a boat to go to the city of Tarshish. Once he gets on the boat, he goes down into the bottom of the boat and he falls asleep. Well, what happens is while he's at sea, a deadly storm arises. Um, he is the only Hebrew on the boat. <clears throat> the rest are Gentiles. And they all begin to cry out to their gods and, and nothing happens. The storm's getting worse and worse. So finally the captain wakes him up. And ironically, the unbeliever has to tell him to cry out to God because he's running from God and is asleep. And uh, says, you know, cry out to your God. There's no evidence that he does. The storm continues on. And uh, basically, the, the sailors find out this storm is because there's someone under uh, judgment, uh, under discipline from God on the boat. And Jonah says, look, if you want the storm to stop, uh, and it's a deadly one, just toss me overboard and the storm will stop. So they toss him overboard, and then here's what happens. So we're going to read chapter 2, but I'd really like to start with 1 verse 15 uh, from what I just described to you. This is God's word for us this weekend. John 
But Jonah 1, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord of my, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. Well, uh, before we jump into this psalm, and it really is a psalm, it's a song he's uh, composed, or a prayer rather, a prayer, a poem that he has composed. Before we do, I want to say something about verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And for certainly modern readers like ourselves, um, this seems fishy. No doubt uh, this verse Boy, that was a cheap joke, but it got a laugh, so I'll use it in the second service. You were my test audience here. I'll be here all weekend, so um, tip your server. But So that I will, I'll use that one again. But anyway, so what is the concern? Why do people say this seems strange? Well, uh, a couple of reasons. One would be kind of a literary <clears throat> approach. Some people would say, well, the book of Jonah is clearly uh, an allegory, or, which is a symbolic um, tale where where multiple uh, characters uh, in the story or events in the story represent something outside the story, uh, an allegory. Or some people say it's a parable. A parable is a a fictional story as well, a fictional story uh, with made-up characters that generally has kind of one central point to it, uh, kind of a moral to the story. So some say it's an allegory or it is a parable, and that's why they don't think verse 17 actually happened and aren't concerned about it because that's not the point they would say. Others would say, well, uh, they would have an aversion to this this verse, what we just read, because they would say, well, it's impossible. Obviously, it's scientifically impossible for someone to survive 72 hours in the stomach of a fish. And uh, so how do we think about that? Well, um, you know, in reading about this, there are some far stretches 
uh, to explain this. One, one person tells a story about someone who supposedly was in a fish and lived and blah, 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 but then after his di- died, his widow said it wasn't a true story. So I'm not going to share that one with you. Um, another says that, well, Jonah stayed in an inn called the fish for three days. But I have more trouble believing that than he was literally in the stomach of a fish. So we don't really need to do that kind of nonsensical uh, sort of uh, gymnastics. Uh, Let me address the first one first. In terms of the literary approach, I, I said in the introduction to Jonah that I'm teaching this as history because I believe the author of Jonah writes it as history. So I think the most... I think integrous approach to the text just on the face of it is to say that the author writes it as if it happened. The author believes that it happened. It's not an allegory or a parable because allegories and parables are about fictitious characters typically. Uh, parables, I would say, always are, are that sort of a, um, a, a, you know, a, that form of literature. And yet Jonah is a real person. He doesn't just appear here. It's not, there once was a, you know, once upon a time there was a guy named Jonah. No, he's in 2 Kings as well. He's an actual prophet. So it's not like saying, hey, once upon a time, you know, there was this real person. Uh, that, that doesn't seem to, to make sense. And also the miracle itself, it's written as a miracle in the plain reading of it. Uh, it's not fanciful. It's not embellished. It's not, it's just mentioned matter-of-factly. You could almost miss it in reading the story. It is so brief. It's just a matter-of-factly, this is what happened. So it's not written in a way that is uh, fictional or fanciful in uh, the way it is written. I think it really comes down to one's view of the universe and one's view of miracles in particular. So if you hold to a sort of a naturalistic view of reality that we live in a universe um, where everything is explainable ultimately by natural causes. We live in a universe where uh, there is no God that intervenes um, and at times disrupts the normal laws of nature. If that is the presupposition um, that you approach the text with, then no, it didn't happen. If, if we approach the text with the presupposition that anything that is uh, miraculous or supernatural must therefore, uh, by default, be unhistorical um, and, and fictional in this case, if that is our point of view, then, um, then it didn't happen. But if you grant that God can and does at times act miraculously, uh, that he does intervene into the normal course of matters um, and how things typically go. If, if you grant that, then this miracle I don't think is necessarily so hard to swallow. Um, I, I think that uh, to become a Christian, to become a Christian, we must embrace miracles that are far, far greater than Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. For instance, the idea that God has become man, uh, that's called the incarnation, the miracle of God becoming man, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. That is a miracle that this doesn't, doesn't even register compared to God coming to earth. So if you believe Christmas and Easter, the resurrection, that Jesus dies and after three days uh, he comes back to life. So he was not preserved for three days, like Jonah, he's dead and then comes back 
to life. Uh, If we believe that, if we as Christians believe that, faith in the miracles of Jesus, those uh, beliefs, then I think lesser miracles, if we can rank them, and I would say this is clearly a lesser miracle, then lesser miracles are not only believable, but I would say this, they are attractive. I mean, if you're skeptical about it, wouldn't doesn't, isn't this an, an appealing idea to you, that there is a benevolent creator, a God who is wholly good and merciful and gracious, who at times defies, intervenes, halts the natural laws of nature to pour out his goodness and kindness and rescue someone? I mean, you, wouldn't you want to know a God like that? I, I find this example actually Uh, This story, this event, I would say this miracle that God does intervene in miraculous ways, I find this very encouraging because believing in a loving, intervening God is not only the foundation of the Christian faith. The foundation is that God has intervened to rescue us in a greater way than this. So believing in a loving, intervening God that is the foundation of the Christian faith, but it is also a great comfort in our times of suffering and trials, and trauma, as is the case here with Jonah. That's what this chapter is really all about. It is about God mercifully, mercifully intervening in Jonah's life for Jonah's good and ultimately for the good of Nineveh. He is acting so that he will announce his mercy experientially to Jonah and then to the people of Nineveh. So if you are skeptical about Uh, you know, about this sort of event here, please don't miss the point of the story. The point of the story is not the action of a hungry whale. The point of the story is the action of a faithful God. And he demonstrates his faithfulness in this account, not just symbolically or by means of parable, which Jesus did teach by parable, but here he, he communicates his mercy by dramatic action to rescue one of his children, one of his wandering children, he performs a miracle to say, I'm not done with you. Mercy swallows Jonah and holds him and preserves him. And that's why if the, the actual account reveals something beautiful about our God, it's something so beautiful that, that all of a sudden the book of Jonah moves from prose to poetry. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? We go from this, everything's written like a historical account, and all of a sudden we have Jonah writing something like what you would read in the Psalms, a, a, a poetic expression to God. And why is that? Well, there's some events that are so amazing, and I would say, again, that's, a, that's an account as well. I mean, I think we could say it's amazing and move on if it's a parable. But Jonah's encounter with God is so amazing that he just, in essence, bursts out in poetry, uh, and that's what is recorded for us, this poetic expression. And this poetic expression is bracketed by the work of God, and that's why I said don't miss the point of the story. The point of the story is God is at work, and we see that in verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish, and then at the end, look at 2.10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out. So the brackets of this event and the brackets of this psalm are this. God appointed a fish. God spoke to the fish. God is using this animal as a lifeboat, so to speak, to rescue one of his children. So what we have in the poem that Jonah 
gives us here is really three things. We have a, a summary of it, a summary of the event in verses one and two, and then we have a section on distress, how bad it is for Jonah, and then we have a section on rescue. So we have summary, distress, rescue. That's how I'm going to outline the psalm. Three, uh, and I'm calling it a psalm because it's written as a, as a poem, a prayer to God. Um, and it's written like a psalm. There's parallelism, parallel language and stuff like that. Certain literary techniques, which we don't need to all break down here this morning, but that reflect uh, a psalm actually. So first of all, the summary. Verses one and two, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So there is, that verse is in parallel. He's, you know, in my distress. What's his distress? It, the belly of Sheol. Uh, I cried out, and he answers me, and he says, and you heard my voice. So there are these two parallel statements, kind of saying the same thing, just repeated. And it's interesting that we get this kind of language because it powerfully captures Jonah's experience. I mean, we are hearing the cries of a drowning man. These are the words of a man who is facing death. And so he doesn't say, hey, like I almost died, but he gives us rather these, uh, th- this powerful description that you can just enter into his experience. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. This is a common, the rescue of God, this is common in the book of Psalms, this is a common theme throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, this is really the theme of Scripture. Uh, I called out, God rescued me from my distress. I was in an impossible situation, and God did what was seemingly impossible, and he rescued me. I was dead or facing death, he gave me life. This is the story of the whole Bible in Jonah's experience right here. Now he says, I cried out from the belly of Sheol. Sheol is the place referred to in the Old Testament as the place of the dead. Those who die and are awaiting uh, judgment, um, this is their place. And so the trajectory of the story has been down. You know, down to Joppa, down on a boat, down in the boat, and now down to Sheol. This is, this, you don't get lower than here. So now I'm, I'm all the way down in the belly. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor, the belly of Sheol. He's in the belly of a uh, great fish. But this is the place of death. I cannot get any lower than the realm of the dead. And that's where I am. So that's the summary of the psalm. What's the whole song about? What's the whole poem about? What's the whole prayer about? It's all about I cried out in distress from the lowest place you can go and God rescued me. That is a message of hope for everybody in the room this morning. Next is distress. So verses 3 through 7 talk about his distress. His distress is not random. It's not accidental. This is not a boating accident. This is not, boy, you know, we should have checked the weather and maybe we wouldn't have gone out knowing a storm was a brewin. Uh, No, this is the work of the Lord. Verse 3, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This is what he said. This is God's work. 
So initially it is Jonah fleeing and Jonah descending, but now he's saying God has cast me into the deep. The, the sailors literally threw him in the water, actually threw him in the water, I should say. They actually tossed him, but he's saying this is God's work. This is God. God is behind what is happening here. I mean, I'm not just drowning in the sea. Uh, this is God's sea. It's your waves and your billows that have passed over me. He looks at his distress and he sees it as the hand of God. He sees God at work in the midst of his trouble. And it's, it's really, uh, it's eye-opening, isn't it, what he says? He says, verse 4, I said, I am driven away from your sight. I am separated from you. I, to be cast into the sea here is to be cast away from God. Listen to the language. This is haunting, this language in verse 5, um, this language describing his demise. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. So the waters are closed in, and I'm surrounded by the deep. In the Old Testament, the writers uh, view the sea. The sea is often used as a picture uh, of chaos, that the sea is um, it's untamed, it's dark, it's the place where you are vulnerable. And that really comes through here. The sea is viewed as something that is uncontrollable. That's why when Jesus, in the midst of the storm, stands up and speaks, uh, it's powerful because he controls the storms that make sailors so vulnerable on the water. Or when he even walks on the water, there's a, there's a statement that as he comes, walks out to the, his disciples, that he is on top of the chaos. He walks over, you know, it's a statement of his power that he controls what is humanly uncontrollable. So it's a place of darkness and vulnerability, and that's what he's saying here. They closed in over me, and I'm surrounded by the deep. He says that, verse 5, weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. Now, this is a powerful word picture here. He's saying if you see a mountain, you know, what's below the surface, a mountain especially if it had water coming up against it, but what's below the surface? Well, like a tree has roots below it. He's using that picture, that image, and he's saying it's like the roots of the mountain, so, which is something you never see. It's down below. That's where I am. And while I'm here, I've got weeds wrapped around my head, which makes an interesting point, doesn't it? Is he describing drowning in water, or is he describing uh, being in the belly of the great fish? I mean, we don't really know how to parse this all out. When they tossed him, did he flap around for a long time and then a fish grabbed him? Or was the fish waiting there almost with mouth open so he just kind of jumped in? And We don't know. Those are probably prose questions and not poetry questions. So here, though I believe this is historical, he's not really writing here an exact account. Here's my memoir of exactly now in verse 3. This is where I'm now in the belly. We, we don't know how it all works out, but whether he is flapping and then caught or whether he's caught immediately and he's taken under, he, the whole experience represents being in the deep. 
He is in a deadly distress. He's going down to a watery prison. Look what verse 6 says at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So this is a prison. Sheol is a prison. These bars are closed upon me, a, a watery grave, or probably better to say a watery prison. So he's gone down, down, into the deep, at the edge of Sheol, the bars to the land. He didn't say the bars closed on me, but I went to the land where the bars close forever. It is the place locked up, entombed in the place of the dead. That's where I was. And so for the first time in the entire book of Jonah, the motion is about to change now. It's been down, down, down. Can't go any lower. And then what happens? Six, second part of verse six. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And that's the third section. It's rescue. I went down, 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 but you brought me up. Jonah stops running from God. He's running down, and now he is brought up. It says, when my life, verse 7, when my life was fainting away, like I'm on my last breath, there's not much left to me, but I remembered the Lord. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. So he's down at the bottom place, but he is remembering God and crying out to God. The downward spiral has brought him so low that he finally turns to God. Boy, there's profound lessons in that for all of us. But he has gone so low that he gets to where he has nothing else and at death cries out to God. Commentator Peter Craigie said, but not until he was all the way down, finally stripped of his own Buoyant self-sufficiency was deliverance possible. Boy, that image has stuck with me all week as I've studied this. Buoyant self-sufficiency. You cannot make it floating on your buoyant self-sufficiency. If this text tells us anything, it tells us that. You cannot float on your buoyant self-sufficiency. This is true for all believers. When we attempt to run from God, he will often let us go until our resources are exhausted and we finally return to him. That's what's happened here. Now, Jonah had some pretty strong, buoyant self-sufficiency. He thought he could escape God by running and getting on a boat. That's foolish, but that's, that's pretty stubborn self-sufficiency. Uh, he thought he could escape God's uh, storm by just sleeping through it. That was pretty self-sufficient. Uh, he, he thought he could ignore a pagan sailor who told him, cry out to God, which is what he should have done on the boat, and he wouldn't be, we wouldn't have chapter 2 if he had done that. If he had repented on the boat, there is no chapter 2. There is no fish that we're talking about here today. There's like, and he turned to the Lord and said, turn this boat around, we're headed to Nineveh. And they all lived happily ever after. That's not how it went. He did not cry out to his God. He did not turn. He said, toss me in the water. I'll die before they have mercy. I'd rather die in the water than be a preacher to go tell the the hope of God to the people of Nineveh. Tossed into the water, hopeless, helpless, 
and he had to be swallowed by a fish to encounter the mercy of God. Hey, there are some of us in the room today, I'm not looking around the room and thinking, I know your story. This is just, I know in a room this size, there are people in the room drifting from God today. Just statistically, there are. There are people running from God today. I mean, you read the story of Jonah and go, wow, that's, that's like my story. You're running from God. And this story serves as a warning that if you are drifting from God, running from God, a more aggressive drifting, a more intentional, willful drifting, if you are, hey, I want to ask you this morning, what will it take to reawaken you to the mercy of God? What will it take to awaken you? What will it take to get you to the end of yourself? Jesus said that to know him and to follow him, it is about coming to the end of yourself and living there at the end of yourself in trust of him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And you can choose to freely, in an act of humility and love for the glorious Savior, choose to lose your life on a daily basis and find him working in your life in wonderful ways, even through your suffering. Or you can choose to go your own way, which Jonah does, which says, I know, I know what you think, God, and I know what I think, and I prefer what I think. I've got a better way than God. And people who walk with a better way than God, God loves us enough and he's merciful enough that he will bring us to the end of ourselves. We can choose to humble ourselves and repent and come to the end of ourselves, or we can have the merciful God come after us so that we come to the end of ourselves. Tim Keller, whose book we have out uh, in the lobby there on the, called The Prodigal Prophet about this book. He says this, I think this is so true. He says, you never recognize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And Jonah comes and recognizes, I have, no, I have nothing. There, there's no way out of this one. I'm literally trapped. I'm literally swallowed by God. Because God sent that God cast me in here is what he says. I can't run from him anymore. But we, we do that, don't we? We rely on other things. What are you relying on as a substitute for God? How long will you lean on something else that you know in your conscience is not what you should be leaning on, not what you should be trusting in, not where you should be finding your security? You're trusting in someone else and you are procrastinating, returning to God while you hold on to your own way a little bit longer, which is a deceptive lie that I can hold on to my way a little bit longer and there's always time to repent. There, there was time for Jonah, but that is presumptuous, presumptuous to believe that. He thought he was right until the water's closed in on him. And he said, I'm surrounded by the deep. If you are a believer in Christ, there, there's really two paths. There is turning to him or is the, there's the pathway of Jonah. Th this is where all running from God ends up. It all ends up with God's severe mercy in our lives. This is mercy, but it's severe mercy is what some 
would call it. In verse 8, Jonah has this great revelation that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What's the point of that? Well, the point is that when severe trouble comes, we find out how weak our idols are. When severe trouble comes, we find out how weak our God substitutes are. When severe trouble comes, we find out how weak our way is when it's not God's way. When we've picked our path instead of his. When we've obeyed ourselves and our ideas instead of him, as Jonah did. When we think we know best for the calling of our life, for the circumstances of life, for how God should treat those people over there and how God should treat it. When we think we know best and we run, it reveals that severe trouble comes and it reveals where our idols really are. Brian Estelle on a, on a commentary on Jonah wrote this, Jonah, chapter two of Jonah should haunt us and shake us out of our doldrums. It should haunt us and shake us out of our doldrums because we are so often like Jonah. It, all, it should also encourage us because Jonah experiences the mercy of God and declares in thankfulness, salvation comes from the Lord. And that's what he says in verse 9, the last verse. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pray. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Verse 2-9, salvation belongs to the Lord. That arguably could be the theme of the Bible. Salvation means rescue. To be saved means to be rescued. And he's saying salvation belongs to the Lord. We know that salvation from our sin and the judgment of God. And when we trust Christ, we receive this kind of salvation. But this really is the heart. Salvation belongs to the Lord is where he ends his poem. That's what God wanted him to go announce in chapter 1, verse 1. It just, I can, can you not relate to this? We're so hard-headed sometimes that if he had just said, well, arise and go and tell them judgment's coming. Well, tell me, Lord, what exactly do you want me to say? Ultimately, the message was to go to Nineveh and say judgment's coming, but salvation comes from the Lord. Salva- judgment is coming upon you. The wrath of God is coming upon you, but rescue comes from the Lord. You can turn to him, which is exactly what's going to happen later in the book. But he had to go through all of this trouble all of this grief to finally say the message. Now, I don't know if he says this, you know, I'll sacrifice. I don't know if this says, it says, and the Lord spoke to the fish. So I guess it's written as if this is kind of his final conclusion. So I don't know if salvation belongs to the Lord. I don't know if that's how it works, you know, temporarily. But it looks like he finally makes the announcement and then, okay, he's on dry land. He's okay. He's okay. It's, It's just so compelling how God works with this. This is the message. And and God wants us to share this same message. This is what having a public versus a private faith is. A public faith is I am who I am. And and I, uh, I relate to those who are different than me. And I seek to love and serve others and take the opportunity to share the reason for the hope that's in me. That I'm, I don't have a hidden faith, but I, have, I don't have an obnoxious faith either, but I have a loving faith that comes out naturally as I engage other people and give a reason for my life. Talk about my hopes, talk about my purpose, share about my dreams, talk about what matters to me, talk about what the core of my life is all about. A vibrant faith in which we offer hope to others, mercy for them. But it starts with being gripped with mercy for us. 
what God does to Jonah is he, in essence, says, you're going to run the other way. I am going to attack you with mercy. I am going to, um, I am going to overwhelm, that, the overwhelm like the waters over him. I'm going to overwhelm you with mercy. I'm going to kick your tail with mercy. You are going to get so much mercy that finally you're going to see it and say, salvation belongs to the Lord. So now he is prepared, having been freshly aware. I mean, when they tossed him, he had to think it's over. And yet God rescued him. And now he's saying, this is a saving God. And it's his experience of this that will cause him to go to Nineveh. Now, he's not going to do great. This is his high point in the whole book. Uh, You know, this really is the best moment of clarity. He doesn't walk this out flawlessly, but he gets it at this point. And that's what God wants us. He wants us to experience his mercy so that we can share his mercy, just as Jonah is called to. It's interesting that he, in the midst of it, he says, he will look, verse 4, I don't know if you noticed this repeated twice. Verse 4, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So why is he dying thinking about the temple? Is he thinking, like, if I could just go one last time to Passover? I mean, why is he saying that? Because the temple is the place of the presence of God from which he's running. But the temple is also the place of sacrifice where atonement is made for sin. So as he's fainting away, I remember, I pray, and I look to God's forgiveness. The temple is clearly the place where animals are sacrificed so God's people are cleansed of their sins. That is the primary function of the temple, the worship of God. So as he's dying or about to die, he says, I will look to your temple. God hears him from there, the place of God's presence, the place of atonement, and and it's the place that he thinks of. When Jonah hits the bottom, what happens? He prays and he looks to the place where his sins are forgiven. He looks to the place where God is present with forgiveness for sinners. That's, what he, that's where he looks. Now, we can look there daily. We don't have to hit the bottom. And sometimes, frequently, perhaps even usually, usually, when we are in great trial, it's not a Jonah thing. It's not that we're willfully running from God, and so that's why we got this sickness or something. We can't make those connections in our own lives unless we feel like, you know, that we're clearly convicted that way we can, but we can't make that, those own connections often in our own lives as Jonah's story. We certainly aren't to make that connection for other people. Uh, that's for God to convict them of. But he hits the bottom, and when he does, he prays, and he looks to the place where his sins are forgiven. It's not just hitting the bottom that changes Jonah's direction. It is his response and so if you're at the bottom today or moving towards the bottom or you've been tossed off the boat and you're starting, you're, you're kind of flailing about feeling like, wow, this is not good. What's going to hold me up? It won't be your buoyant self-sufficiency. You can only tread water so long. You need rescue. You need a merciful rescue. So it's not, it's not just hitting the bottom, but it's repentance at the bottom. Remember the Lord who I'm running from. It's prayer at the bottom. It's forgiveness at the bottom. Because we look up and we don't see the temple. We don't cry out to God in the temple, hoping to see the temple, believing God is hearing us in the temple. Under the new covenant, we're, we cry out to the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. It, it, those animals that were slain in the temple for forgiveness pointed to Christ. And so we look to Christ 
who says he is the temple. Christ is the one that we look to. We see mercy extended to us in Jesus at the greatest cross. We see Jonah says, verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. We look to Jesus Christ who was driven away from the Father's sight. Jesus who on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is judged for our sins and says he is forsaken by the Father so that we will never be forsaken by God. He is separated from his father while he bears our sins in the sense that he is a substitute dying for us, uh, experiencing a forsakenness, that's his word, so that we will never be forsaken or never separated in him. He was driven away so that we won't be driven away. He is not just surrounded by the deep. Jonah says, the deep surrounds me. I'm on the verge of Sheol. He actually dies, Jesus. He doesn't almost die. He doesn't descend uh, to a really dark place. He descends to the lowest place as the sin bearer for all of our sins. And then he as Jonah says, you brought me up, so the Father brings him up. He is, he is risen from the dead. So it's not just hitting bottom, but turning to God, turning away from all other options. Now, Jonah doesn't have a lot of options at this point, but it's turning from all other options and saying, I, I'm going all in. I trust you, Lord, with my life. I'm not going my way. I'm not doing my thing. I'm not going to do what I know clearly in my conscience is a walk away from you, a pathway away from you. I'm not going to go on a, on a job path that I know in my conscience will lead me away from you. I'm not going to go into a relational path that will lead me away from you. I'm not going to go into a scheduling path with my time which will uh, lead me away from you. But Lord, I'm running to you. Maybe you're here today and you go, hey, have I, I'm drifting. I wonder if I've drifted too far. The answer is no. If you're here breathing, you're living, it is impossible to drift too far. That's one of the parts of the story. You cannot go lower than Jonah goes. You cannot go lower. He's at the, at the, he's at the gates of the realm of the dead, hoping the gates don't trap him forever. And yet God opens his heart, opens his eyes, and he turns to him. God is merciful and patient with him. And God will use all that we have been through if we turn and trust to him. There's some people in the room, I wonder if I've gone too far. I wonder if I've done irreconcilable damage to my relationship with God. Impossible. Matter of fact, God is so merciful, he will frequently, frequently use. When we repent, he will use our dark times of rebellion for his glory. In some way, using that to minister to others. Using that to produce gratitude for, in our hearts now for what he's done for us. I'm not saying we should, we should pursue darkness so the light will be all the brighter, but I am saying he uses the darkness in, in our lives. You've not ruined God's usefulness for your life. He's, Jonah's still going to be used to bring revival. God chases us with mercy. It's never too late. There's some of us in the room, you'd say, well, I'm not running, but someone I love is running. Someone that used to be in this church that's running. A dear friend of mine that I used to have sweet fellowship with is running. My kid's running. My spouse is running. I say the same thing to you. Hope in God. It is never too late. When Jonah gets tossed overboard, everybody would assume, well, that's the end of the story. It's over. But it is not over when the mercy of God is in play. 
and the mercy of God is always in play. And while we're on that, loving a runner from God, I just want to say having a public faith means not only that we want mercy for those who are far away, those in Nineveh, but we also look to share our faith and love those and care for those, not only in Nineveh, but also those who uh, are running from God, who know him but are running. That is part of our mission. And so that's why I'm saying this is not just about mercy for them. This is mercy for us. We lived in a city filled with runners. Certainly people talk about our culture being post-Christian, and I think in many ways it is. But we still live in a place with some roots in the Bible Belt and some history in the Bible Belt where there's plenty of people that don't know, know anything about Jesus, to be sure. But there are plenty of people that grew up in church and are wandering another pathway right now in our city. You work with them. You live by them. They used to, they know about the mercy of God. Some of them have tasted the mercy of God. Some of them have deeply been embedded among the people of God. But something happened, and now they are going their own way. They are adrift at sea. And when you see them realizing, realize this, they're treading water. They are bo- they're, it's their buoyant self-sufficiency that is holding them up, but it will not last. The mercy of God is coming for them, and he may use you to extend mercy to them, and may they repent and turn to him. Ministry in our city includes holding out mercy to those not only who don't know anything about God, but those who do and have chosen their own way temporarily, perhaps, as prodigals. If we're going to join God in his mission, then we must experience the mercy like we read here. We must come to God recognizing his goodness to us in Christ, thanking him as Jonah does, praying that he would hold our hearts, that we'd be increasingly aware of mercy, that we'd be increasingly affected by the gospel with gratitude in our own lives, and that that would compel us with mercy for others. That's why we're doing Alpha, because Alpha is a means to share mercy with those who are in the church and have drifted, those who have questions, those who are far from God. It has come, one, come all because we want to gather around with a voice of thanksgiving and share with them through a meal and conversation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The rescue you're looking for will not be found in money. The rescue you're looking for will not be found in success. The rescue you're looking for will not be found in having the perfect family or a fat retirement account or a toned body. These things that our culture chases, you, you will not find life in those. You will only find life when you lose your life, Jesus says, and receive the mercy of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May this be our song. May this motivate us with hope. May this cause us who are drifting to come home now, today. And may this, may this cause us who are not drifting to be aware of the grace of God, to fear the Lord, that we stay close to him. And for all of us, may we look to those who are drifting with a heart of mercy. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.